Well, this morning we are uh, a final, we're looking at our final session in 3 John. We've been looking at uh, 3 John uh, sporadically over the last three or four weeks. We've got to the last little section. Today we're going to hear that section read for us uh, now, and I think uh, Sue is going to uh, read that for us. Yeah. The Elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as we stand, so we pray, taking some words of the psalmist. O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. I ask this through Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen. Now do please be seated and uh, keep uh, 3 John open uh, before you as we come back to the, uh, this uh, lovely little letter uh, for the last time uh, this morning. As I remember my school days, which are ever further away, of course, uh, several teachers remain vividly clear in my mind, uh, despite that passing of time. Uh, there were the terrifying ones, uh, Mr. Cannings, something like five foot two, uh, but an awesome disciplinarian. We learned to recognize his footsteps as they came up behind us, and we would instinctively check to see that our top buttons were done up uh, before we got another barrage from him. 
Uh, They were the incompetent ones. Uh, Dear old Mr. Chorley really should never have become a teacher. And whether he or we were more miserable uh, is a subject of debate. But most positively, they were the ones I admired and learned most from. The ones who drew out the best from me. And as I think of them, I would struggle to tell you any specific thing that they actually taught me. It was their attitude, their devotion to their students, and their passion for their subject that made them stand out. I think of Mr. Oxley at uh, primary school. Uh, I think I was about five when he was my teacher. Uh, I loved him, uh, although, as I recall, my parents disapproved. Uh, I do remember, though, that he taught us the Lord's Prayer. And uh, given the much stricter separation of church and state education in Australia, much more like America than here, and the fact that he was hugely bearded, wore sandals and played a guitar, (laughs) I'm convinced, in hindsight, that he must have been a Christian. It was 1974, and those, I understand, were the ways of identifying Christians in those days. There were many others, of course. There were Mrs. Griffin, who made me enjoy English for the first time. Uh, Mr. Gray, who inspired uh, in me a pursuit of mathematics and a love of all uh, all things computing. He also took me under his wing uh, when I was at boarding school. And I still remember the day uh, I told him, I don't know why I did, uh, that I had a crush on his daughter. (laughs) Why would I do that? Anyway, I did. Uh, He took me to his office. Uh, found a couple of cans of beer, and uh, we sat down and he talked to me all about the mysterious ways of the female sex, just like any father might do with his son. He was a good man, and it was exactly what I needed, even if it might not have been approved of in the 21st century view of education. But what was key with all of these teachers was not simply that they knew their subjects well, though they did, Neither was it just that they evidently cared for and labored over the young people in their classes, though they did that. It was the combination of those two things that made them inspiring teachers. In hindsight, they seemed to have both a love for what they taught and a love for the young people to whom they were teaching it. And that combination made us want to follow in their footsteps. There is a parallel and more profound truth in spiritual things. In this third and final look at the Apostle John's third letter, we shall see on the surface what has been running underneath throughout the letter, namely that authentic Christianity always marries a love for Jesus Christ as the truth to a love for the church, the people of Jesus Christ, who walk in his truth. John has written this letter to his beloved friend, the well-beloved Gaius. He's encouraged him back in verse 4 that he's walking in the truth. And the reason for John's confidence about his friend's spiritual state is the costly hospitality that he's been showing to the traveling Christian missionaries. Verse 6, they've told the church about your love. How do I know you're walking in the truth? Because of the love that you are showing A devotion to both subject and student marks an admirable teacher in any field. In a similar way, a devotion to both Christ and Christ's followers marks an authentic Christian believer. Truth and love. John's favorite words, my favorite words, are inseparable companions in vital Christianity. 
And so in the first eight verses, John encourages his dear friend to persevere in these things. Uh, Then in verses 9 and 10, as we saw last time, uh, we come across the ugly character uh, of the Reverend Diotrephes, the vicar of Gaius' church. Uh, He seems to have been faithful enough in his preaching, at least for now. But the hallmarks of his character are pride and lovelessness. Here is truth without love, which in the end is no truth at all if Christ is the truth. And so what therefore must Gaius do to keep his soul getting along well? John has encouraged him, but there's great danger in his church for the very pastor himself is modeling something contrary to authentic Christianity. So now in this final section, John comes to encourage his well-beloved, his friend Gaius, about how he can keep going well, how his soul can prosper Uh, even with the discouragement of the leadership of his own local church. What must he do? Three things. First, he must find himself some good teachers. Not necessarily teachers in the formal sense, but godly role models whose integration of truth and love he can imitate. Believers who will spur him on to continuing and deepening faithfulness. We see this in verse 11. We persevere by imitating wisely. Second, he must discern who is worthy of such imitation, which is not as easy as it seems. Demetrius is given as an example, verse 12, and the testimony he receives enables us to make right choices in these things too. We discern by listening carefully. And third, Gaius will be encouraged much more fully when he sees the apostle face to face. Verses 13 and 14, likewise for us, we encourage one another as we spend time with each other, as we speak in person. How will Gaius keep his soul getting along well with all the discouragements that are there for him? How will we do the same? Well, we'll persevere by learning to imitate wisely. We'll discern by listening carefully. We'll encourage by speaking personally. First, in verse 11, we persevere by imitation. Having described the proud and wicked Diotrephes, John urges Gaius, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil. Fairly clearly a reference back to Diotrephes. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. We know, don't we, as parents, that our children imitate us. And isn't it chastening when it's our flaws that they imitate. We'd much rather they just imitated the good bits, but unfortunately they know us too well, and it's the whole package that they learn from. I remember many years ago uh, telling Mary off as a toddler and uh, being startled the first few times. She gave what became a standard excuse in that season, eyes just tired. (laughs) Now, where did she learn to blame her sin on her tiredness, rather than just acknowledging it and apologizing. I'll give you a clue, it was from a parent, and it wasn't her mother. (laughs) We human beings are instinctive imitators. That's how trends and fashions work. And John here simply acknowledges this is part of the way our minds are constructed, but the choice we have is in who we imitate, at least as adults. That becomes something we can more consciously decide to do. 
And it's a hard choice to make, not because we can't tell the difference between good and evil, but because we inwardly, instinctively incline towards evil. And outwardly, when we open our eyes, we will find plenty of encouragement in our culture to pursue ungodliness and selfishness rather than Christ's ways. And sadly, as for Gaius, that ungodliness doesn't always stop at the church door, but is manifested for him even in his minister. So put yourself in Gaius' shoes. Uh, Here he is, seeking to be a faithful believer, yet his own behavior is being openly contradicted and condemned by his strongly-minded, ungodly minister. It must have been rather tempting, uh, don't you think, to uh, justify conformity to Geotrophy's influence. After all, uh, he was the vicar. Surely it must be right to follow his lead. He was the duly established authority in that congregation. It would certainly have made Gaius' life easier just to go along uh, with his example. John assures Gaius, Geotrophy's is wrong. He was abusing his position, as we saw last time. For all his lawful authority, he was not to be followed in his ungodliness. Now, making the choice for Gaius was not easy, and it's not easy for us either. We have to work against our own sinful tendencies and the pressures from the world outside, and sometimes, yes, the pressures from half-hearted worldly Christians as well. Perhaps I could illustrate it with a perennial issue that Christian parents face. When our children are young, it's not that hard to bring them to church. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's always plain sailing or that one's fellow believers will always and only offer kindness, welcome and empathy to the struggling mum with a screaming toddler. But we intend to, and I want to know when we're not getting that right And I want to honour the many in our congregation who sacrificially serve even now in creche and Sunday school every week in our welcome team and in tots and in many other ways to make children and their families welcome here. And certainly if you ever fail to, uh, certainly if you ever discourage or fail to accommodate a child and their parents from being fully welcomed here at St. John's, you will find yourselves at loggerheads with me and I would argue with Jesus as well. But younger children grow up, and as they grow, they begin to develop their own interests and commitments. It's a good thing. We encourage it as parents. We want our children to grow to the point of fashioning their own lives and becoming more independent of us. But those other interests, especially in our culture, will often find expression in commitments that clash with Sunday morning church. What do you do at that point as a parent? There aren't any easy answers. Whatever you do can go horribly wrong. There's no formula. Our choices may be limited by a spouse who takes a very different view or a hundred other complicating factors. But let me ask the question anyway. I know that many of us have over the years. What do you do? Do you compel the child to attend because you want to teach them the priority of gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day under the Lord's word? But what if your child then becomes embittered, resenting both you and the church when they desperately want to be elsewhere? 
So do you allow the child to pursue their Sunday commitment and abandon or significantly loosen your whole family's commitment to Christ and his church? The danger there is obvious. Longer-term spiritual apathy or a complete abandonment of the faith. I have to say in all honesty that in my experience here over many years, this is almost always the outcome of this latter choice. But that doesn't make the former choice any easier or bring with it any guarantees. God has no grandchildren, and our children have to make the hard choice for themselves whether they want to prioritize Christ over other interests or whether he will fall into second, third, or eventually last place. So what do we do? Well, I would suggest that at that point, what we need are godly role models. People who've loved the Lord and his word and who know how precious and important it is to gather as his people, but who nevertheless want to tenderly care for their children. I've known families in this church who've navigated these choppy waters with grace and shrewdness, and sometimes with costly choices like enabling participation in a sports team out of the area because it doesn't routinely practice or play on a Sunday morning, but may well mean considerable and sustained inconvenience for the parent in enabling such participation. Legalism isn't the answer, but neither is abandonment of an element of core Christian discipleship, namely gathering with the church on the Lord's day. I'm not giving you the answer. What I'm saying is, like like Gaius, we need godly role models. We need help. We need to learn who to imitate, who's been through this before, and who can give us some tips along the way. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. You will imitate. So learn to find those who are good examples. And why in the end is this so important? And not the specific example that I've given you, but at the general principle, why does it matter so much to give visible evidence of our love for God and his people, taking sometimes painful priority over our instinctive love for the world and its pleasures? Well, simply because our patterns of behavior indicate far more convincingly than words the reality of our spiritual condition. Remember Gaius, to whom John is writing, how does John know that his soul is getting along well? Because he's put himself out at great cost and inconvenience to love the visiting missionaries. That's how John knows that Gaius is getting along well. That's how the Lord knows that we're getting along well. Not when things are easy, but when things are tough, holding together truth and love, the priority of Christ and his people And his commandments. Anyone who does what is good is from God, John says. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. I begin to live a good life, not in the eyes of our uh, fellow human beings, but in the eyes of Christ. Uh, Not simply making a few outward changes to impress people, but to begin to have uh, our priorities radically reordered from within so that Christ is now our master. This is the evidence of being born again, of receiving from God that gift of his spirit which makes us new. And as we come to Christ, we need God as we are born from above, uh, so we are now from God, John says. 
But the person who, like Diotrephes, perhaps, has grasped creedal Christianity, but not actually experienced the radical inward change of being born from above, that person has not seen God. In other words, he has not truly encountered the one in whom God became visible, Jesus Christ. So John is not saying that the good or evil we do is the basis on which we come to God. But he is saying that our fundamental commitment in these things gives indisputable evidence of whether God has worked in us. That miracle from above, that miracle of new birth, whereby he opens our eyes to the glorious majesty of his son. And as we see him, so every other choice in our lives is made in the light of that first love. And so if we are to imitate what is good, how do we discern it? That's what we turn to second in verse 12. We discern by listening. We've no idea who Demetrius was or what in practice made him a worthy example for Gaius to emulate. His cameo gives us even less to go on than the two verses we had last time on nasty old Diotrephes. Perhaps he was another member of Gaius's church. Perhaps he was one of those Diotrephes it expelled. And that's left Gaius wondering if someone he'd admired could really be a good example, having defied the church leadership. Perhaps he was one of the missionary brothers that Gaius has been supporting, one of those who went out for the sake of the name, verse 7. What we do know is that John gives Gaius three reliable voices to listen to in discerning who is to be imitated and who is to be ignored. And we can listen to those same three voices today. And so we can make a right discernment about who are the ones that we should imitate as we seek to honor Christ in our lives. Listen again to verse 12. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Three voices, everyone, the truth itself, and the author of the letter, John, whose apostolic testimony is true. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius. It's hard to quantify who the everyone is here. Perhaps John means that even among unbelievers, Demetrius is known for his honesty and integrity. Certainly the everyone will include the consensus of Christian believers. And friends, if you've been here for a year or two in St. John's, you know who those people are in our congregation, don't you? I'm not going to name anybody uh, from the pulpit, uh, but you don't have to have been here very long to know that there are some who are universally admired and adored for their consistent faith, for their loving service, for their humble character their gentleness, their generosity. They're the sort of person that when you need help, you're going to go and talk to because you know that you'll receive a gracious response and very probably a practical answer as well. Well, those are the sort of people who are real believers and they become known in every congregation. Demetrius was one of those. We need to look them out to learn to imitate those who are widely respected for their spiritual authenticity. And the second voice, the truth 
itself. As throughout John's letters, the truth means Christ's truth, revealed in the scriptures, uh, the word of truth, uh, and that word uh, borne witness inwardly by the spirit of truth. Congregations may be collectively led astray by those they admire, but here is the objective anchor and benchmark for questions of good and evil. Jesus Christ has revealed in his word that inward witness born to by the Spirit. Uh, the world uh, meanders in its definition of good and evil. That which was good 30 years ago is no longer good today. Uh, churches do likewise when they take their eyes and ears off Christ's written word. But to be well spoken of by the truth itself is to say that according to Christ's word, here is one who is genuine, not perfect, genuine. Indeed, if they are genuine, uh, then their own humility and contrition will be plain to see. They'll be the first to tell you of their own struggles and how they continue to need the daily mercy of the Lord. And then the apostle says, thirdly, we also speak well of him. Demetrius comes with the personal recommendation of John, the elder, the apostle. From time to time, I must to write references for members of our church. There's one in my inbox at the moment. It's a weighty responsibility. But any reference I write will only have as much moral authority as the person reading it considers that I possess. The quality of the referee determines the quality of the reference. So John's commendation carries huge authority. The aged apostle of Christ himself is willing to vouch for Demetrius. We don't have any living apostles who could write us references. But we do have those whose spiritual authority we trust and whose authenticity we recognize. And when they commend another to us, And say, perhaps you should ask this person, because I know they've gone through that same question and really wrestled with it. Or perhaps they can help you with this. Or why don't you come along to this group? Because this leader really is someone who can encourage you in your struggles in faith. That commendation is one we should pay attention to. How do we work out who to imitate and who to ignore? Listen carefully. There is a collective family wisdom in the church. There's the objective standard of Christ and his word. That must be the voice we attend to most closely. And there is the commendation by those who are wise and respected among us. What does it mean? Uh, You guys need to find a way to sit down with your Demetrius. Or if you've been around the block a couple of times, you Demetriuses need to look out for Gaiuses to encourage Are you in a house group or jigsaw or other small Bible study group? These are the obvious and regular places to form such mutually strengthening relationships. If you're a parent of a teenager, have you sought wisdom from those who've done this before? Are you encouraging your youngster and enabling them to be part of our crossover group? There are countless other ways in which we can put this into practice. It's not just these formal ways. We all need to grow ears that will attend to the godly wisdom of a Demetrius, even as we grow to be like him. So we persevere by imitating wisely. We discern by listening carefully. Thirdly and finally, we encourage by speaking personally. Verses 13 and 14. 
I have no doubt that if John had been writing this letter in the early 21st century, uh, he would have said in verse 13, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with email or Facebook Messenger or fill in your own social media platform uh, alongside pen and ink, which is still available for those who like the old words. It isn't just that communicating in this pen and ink or any of the modern equivalents is a bad thing. Of course it's not. John has just taken pen and ink and written a letter, and that's what we're studying in church this morning. Uh, Rather, his point, almost identical to the way in which he ends his second letter, which is to a congregation, uh, not to an individual, is that the best way to communicate with our fellow believers is face to face. And the similarity of the endings of these two letters suggests that this is a, a general point. The best way to encourage an individual believer is to sit down with them and talk to them over a cup of coffee in the same physical space. And the best way to have fellowship with the church is when it gathers together in the same physical space where we can see each other and where we can follow up afterwards in conversation and prayer anything that has been raised during the service or other gathering. So, yes, by all means... Join us on YouTube. I'm so glad that those of you who are out there, even now on the live stream, are joining with us. Or perhaps you're watching us later uh, on the catch-up. These are good things. It's a good thing to reply to emails, to send people notes, or whatever else it is to stay up to date on Facebook. Um, Just don't look to me if you want to communicate on Facebook. But whatever your means of communication, these are good things. And yet in the end, none of them can substitute for real flesh and blood fellowship. I guess the obvious application of this is the discussion many churches are having about whether to continue live streaming their main Sunday service. I know some churches who have quite deliberately stopped doing that to reinforce the point that John is making, that a screen can never substitute for face-to-face fellowship. Uh, Indeed, I've heard it argued that in continuing with live streaming, it may be positively harming uh, those who are perfectly capable of getting to the building but are choosing for other reasons not to. I wouldn't go that far, but I would encourage you, if you are joining us on the live stream, and I am speaking directly to you now, uh, to join us here if you're healthy and you live locally and you're mobile. If those three things are true, then I'd love you to be here and not on the YouTube live stream. For me, though, the benefit of continuing to live stream uh, for those uh, who are not healthy or not mobile is decisive. I was so moved as I visited Margaret Baker a few months ago on her deathbed to hear how precious it was to her that she was able to join us on her iPad, from her bed, uh, in the live stream of these 10 o'clock services. So we are going to continue with them, and we'll do so indefinitely and enthusiastically, and we'll pray that they continue to be a real blessing to those who are poorly or infirm, to those who are catching up, uh, having taught Sunday school this morning, uh, or to those who are on holiday and can't find a local church to bless, uh, to those in far-flung places who may not have a gospel voice to listen to locally. 
But it is offered with the spirit of longing that those of you who are there will soon be here. Let me address John's final words, especially to those of you who are on the live stream or the catch-up. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of John and Gaius and Demetrius, who walked in truth and lived in love many centuries ago, and who continue to do so with you in eternity, face to face with their loving Lord. As we seek to follow in their footsteps today, knowing the same Lord, believing the same gospel, having the same hope, grant that we will do so by persevering as we imitate wisely, by discerning as we listen carefully, and by encouraging as we speak personally. In Jesus' name, amen.